This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us is Dr. Leanne Davies. She's the founder and CEO of Agenomics, holds a PhD in aging, health, and well-being, and co-authored uh, this book with Blair called When Life Bites You in the Wallet. Uh, Leanne and Blair, both pretty passionate, I'd say, about uh, helping folks uh, do better with their money, and Leanne, specifically for you, for folks uh, to deal with as, as we all age. So thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So, of course, real estate market always uh, comes up as a, as a great thing for folks to think about and to get involved in. Uh, we're sort of focusing on the bank of mom and dad in this segment, and uh, I kind of like it. I, I never had a bank of mom and dad, but I know that if I had children that needed it, I would be that bank of mom and dad. It, am I sort of on the right track there? You sure are. It's certainly a trend. It's a trend that's been around for a long time, but we see it increasing really in acceptance, but unfortunately, it's also increasing in expectation. And why do you think that is? I know know that's a little off topic, but why do you think that is so much today? Well, I think that a lot of it comes to how you've introduced this whole segment, which is real estate has become, you know, a a general topic and concern for many of us. Not everyone lives in an expensive real estate market, but of course, so many people in Canada do. Yeah. And, uh, and it just creates that whole conversation of how will these young people start to enter into the real estate market and find a place where they can have a family, grow their careers, all of those things that are are normal expectations of life. So we're concerned and we know that the generation of mom and dad, or sometimes it's grandma and grandpa, um, may be there to help them and give them that good start. And that sense of a windfall uh, too for the for the parents, for the bank, for the mom and dads, because all of a sudden the home, the family home that maybe they bought for thirty or forty or sixty or seventy thousand mm-hmm. dollars is now worth a crazy amount of money, uh, regardless of where you're living in the Lower Mainland or even the South Island. Uh, I mean, it's 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 an easy it's an easy jump to make to think that oh they they can afford it, so I should be able to do this. Oh, sure it is, and. And that's where the expectation part of this comes in, where we've got people who are thinking, you know, I'm young, I went to university, I'm all ready to start my career, but how can I get that jump start like mom and dad had? And maybe mom and dad can help me. So it's not um, an unreasonable expectation, but when you start to drill down into it, there are certainly some concerns that you need to be aware of. Let's talk about those concerns, Leanne. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing is, I think, just the term, the bank of mom and dad. Um, If we start to look at it from the standpoint of the older generation as being a bank, that's different than how we looked at maybe mom and dad giving a a little bit of a leg up from years ago. So we used Mm. to see things like, oh, I might save that um, baby bonus check when my children were young. So we've got that generation who maybe benefited from their parents saving those those smaller bits of money and help them through university. 
But now, um, you know, that was a gift. But now we've got this whole concept of bank of mom and dad. And if we really look at that, a bank comes with obligations. If we look at what the term banking means, it's not a gift. It's not a free handout. It is a obligation and there's a commitment to meet that obligation or there's a consequence. Good point, and mm-hmm. not a, not everybody thinks, of, or at least the the recipients of that of that money may not necessarily think of those things. That's right, and that's where there needs to be a very good family conversation, and this is the importance of having that open communication at the outset before the actual banking transaction, so to speak, takes place. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about what it means for both parties and what the expectation is for both parties. That means putting time frames around it, um, acknowledging if there are strings tied to it, such as if you sell that house that we're helping you purchase, um, we want to have a certain amount of the money back. Uh, there's all sorts of things that need to happen in this conversation. I guess, Leanne, as you were speaking, I thought it was very interesting, just, just the concept here that, you know, in the past, the bank of mom and dad might be, you know, just some savings that mom and dad had, you know, built up over time, whether it's baby bonus or, or whatever. What it seems to be now that I've seen, um, you know, even anecdotally in my circle of friends is it's, you know, we're sharing in mom and dad's windfall, so to speak. We're sharing in some of their real estate appreciation that, you know, in this um, incredible run up in house prices that the current generation feels like they missed the boat on, um, you know, in some ways, it's not money that mom and dad have saved. It's, it's, somewhat found money is the way sometimes I think the recipients can can look at it. And to me, that seems a little bit of a dangerous way to consider, you know, a dollar is a dollar, whether it's a real estate appreciation or money that's been saved over years. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And the found money concept is a really interesting one. And I think what's also changed with that perspective is I think back to when I was younger and I can remember, um, I remember being in high school and kids being given cars when they turned Mm -hmm. 16. And of course, I told my parents about that and they were like, yeah, dream on kids. That's (laughs) not going to be happening for you. Um, And then these kids also ended up getting down payments for houses and so forth. But when I think about where that windfall came from, often those were um, business people who had built up businesses, um, who had built up legal firms and so forth, and had made uh, a lot of money through that type of work. And so it wasn't as obvious to us kids or young adults about how much money there really was. Um, Whereas today, we know how much houses cost, Mm -hmm. and we know these windfalls are coming from something that we're all very aware of. And that might be why this expectation of the bank of mom and dad and that found money is being being um, talked about more and expected more because we're more aware of it. But it's always gone on. Yeah, absolutely. We're very aware of it. I mean, it's you can't you can't get away from that uh, story being told over and over again. So, Leanne, what's your suggestion then or suggestions for for parents who want to sort of give their kids or children, uh, set them up a little bit better for their own success or financial independence? Because that seems like if, if you've got a good foundation in that as a young person, then things are going to look and seem a little bit different than those who don't have that. Sure. I think um, that it really comes down to this conversation. Um, and it's a conversation from a, a few perspectives. And I think the way a parent can start this is to say to their, um, to their children, 
your well-being's important to mom and dad, um, but in talking about your well-being, and we know that you have some hopes and dreams, and we want to support those, we want you to understand that what we're about to talk about are my earned assets, whether they've been earned through the real estate market and the good fortune through that or through the businesses I've had or so forth. And the other part of the earned assets are my time. And if you have expectations for my time, such as helping out with daycare situations or having you come back and live in our house and spend more time in our house where you save up more money, We can talk about that, but only under the condition that you understand that these are my assets and that we need to put some boundaries around this. I I remember hearing a very wealthy uh, celebrity couple uh, talk with their children, and their children said something like, well, we have this and we have that, and and the dad said, actually, I have that, (laughs) and your mother and I have this, but you guys actually don't. You've been freeloading for a while, and things are about to change. Yeah, and that's perfect. It it is very much the case. They are the assets of the older generation, mom and dad or grandma and grandpa. And that younger generation needs to first understand that point. Because if they don't understand that point, the next part of the conversation is not going to make any sense at all. I would think that that'd be a pretty hard conversation to start as well. Have you got some tips on how to start that? Yeah, start it early. That's the easiest one. (laughs) (laughs) So it shouldn't be a surprise at the age of 30. Yeah. So when even with your children, if you have very young children um, and talking about, you know, different things that maybe you buy for the house. So let's say that you've you've bought um, a new TV, big screen TV now that we're going to see a number of people get it at Christmas time. Um, that would be something for people to say, for families to say, you know, this is wonderful that we're able to buy this for our family. And this is why mom and dad work so hard to be able to do this. And now it's something that the family gets to share, but mom and dad bought it. And this is why it's important to learn how to save money. Or for their birthdays, another occasion, if there's something that um, that gets purchased. Again, it, it's talking about how you're able to do that in a family. That this, this item that they bought that the child really wants for their birthday, it's because mom and dad work hard for it and are happy to share that for this item. But mom and dad buy things for their own use as well. And it starts to really, I think, create a more open conversation all the way along about what is credit, how do you use credit, how do you save for things, where is savings important, um, why is an education important, how does that give you a leg up as well. And those are conversations throughout the child's lifetime, right into their adulthood. Yeah, and trying to have all those at, at once, <laughs> it's definitely not going to work, but something gradual, I think that, that's a great, a great insight there. Leanne, I just had a, a question, and sorry, I've lost, lost my train of thought here. <laughs> but you're right, Blair. All at once doesn't work. Nobody mm. can absorb that. And mm. also, ah. if you try to do something all at once, mm. it's almost like the parent is chastising the adult child. You can't do that. Thank you. And, and Leanne, sorry, I've got my question now. Um, the idea of involving professionals, definitely that can't happen at your you know, initial conversation, but I see it with a lot of my clients where mom and dad might have given some money for the down payment if they've done it right and they've gotten someone to you know, put it on the mortgage as a title charge, that can be valid and they can still get their money out. If they haven't done it right, then you know, they can really have some challenges. So I guess what's the t- when's the key time to get some expertise involved? 
Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up because there's there's that aspect that you talked about where we need to have legal and financial expertise involved before the asset is handed over. Uh, the parent or the owner of that asset needs to completely understand the obligation um, that's being created both for them and for the child who's receiving that. So if it's signing something, the person who has added their signature to it, mom or dad, now have an obligation that they may not understand. They may think the obligation is just for the adult child, and it no longer is. And we've just most recently seen uh, a, a newer obligation coming onto the horizon, which is grandparents who have been providing financial assets and babysitting and so forth to grandchildren and now are being held uh, accountable by the courts. There's cases now coming forward as to what type of um, ongoing financial um, re- uh, commitment that they have to that grandchild. Do they need to provide a monthly sum going forward to raise that grandchild? So these are significant issues that are having huge legal ramifications and can destroy somebody's retirement. For more information, check out Leanne's website, agenomics.ca. Leanne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Elaine. Thank you, Blair. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, i got to say, this is one of my favorite topics for our segment mm-hmm. um, because it was something that was brand new to me when, when I first started working with you, and that's talking about a consumer proposal. So we're going to learn what a consumer proposal is and the enormous advantages to what a consumer proposal is. Yeah, I, I'm still amazed, Elaine. We've been doing this show for a number of years. I've been trying to do a lot of marketing with Sands for a lot of years now, but still, just about everybody, when I sit down and meet with them, and I say, you know, have you heard of a consumer proposal? More people shake their head than nod their head. So yeah. it's still something, it's still relatively unknown. And I would say it's the greatest debt solution you've probably never heard of. And it's and it is a new concept in terms of it's not replacing something else that was mm-hmm. in pl- in place before. There were bankruptcies you could file for a bankruptcy, yeah. and that and that's all. And then the consumer proposal came to light. Yeah, it was an added solution that was brought in, you know, sometime in the 90s or so, but it's really, it's just gained a whole lot of popularity in probably about the last five to seven years. Um, So, you know, if I was looking back about seven years ago with Sands & Associates, it was about a third of our clients filed consumer proposals, about two-thirds did a bankruptcy. Now that's completely flipped. So about two-thirds of the individuals that come to see us end up filing a consumer proposal and about one-third file a bankruptcy. So that's a really significant change from a trustee's perspective. And they're pretty different solutions comparing a bankruptcy and a consumer proposal. So what a consumer proposal is, is it's essentially a repayment arrangement that's made through a trustee, whereas instead of going into a bankruptcy where you throw your hands up and say, I can't afford to negotiate any repayment on these debts, I'm going to pay based on my income, I'm going to take it as it comes. In a consumer proposal, you say to your creditors, I could file for bankruptcy and I would pay you less and that's my right to do so. But I'd prefer not to do that if you guys will come to the table and make a deal with me. And the way a deal works in a consumer proposal is by law, there's no further interest. There's no collection activities against you. Everything has to stop as soon as the proposal is filed. And then it's just a question of how much can you reasonably afford to repay on the debts. So a lot of the time, it's far less than 100 cents on the dollar. It's usually in the range of maybe 25 cents on the dollar, 35, 20 to 40 cents, something like that. But it's usually a very big reduction in the total amount of the debt 
outstanding. When you add that to zero interest and you add that to all the fees are included in what you repay, it can be a really compelling ability for somebody to essentially stare down a really difficult debt problem, look at a bankruptcy alternative and say, you know what? I want to do something different, and a proposal is that something different to get you back on track. Okay, so let's drill down on the consumer proposal and the advantages that it, that it gives you. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one being you are consolidating your debt. It's not yeah. like you're like you said you're not uh, throwing your hands up. You're actually taking action. Exactly. So what a lot of people look for first is, oh my God, I've got all this debt. It's at various different interest rates. I'm going to go to the bank. I'm going to try to get a consolidation loan. At least I'll have one payment. And I'll pay hopefully a reduced amount of interest. So good in theory, but the challenges. Most people can't qualify for a consolidation loan unless they've got really high income or a whole lot of assets, which maybe they wouldn't need the loan if that's the case. Um, And then also a consolidation loan, you've still got to pay everything back in full, um, plus some interest on top of it. The way a consumer proposal works is it does the exact same as a consolidation loan from the perspective as it puts all of the debt together. It's one payment. It could deal with your credit card debt, your overdraft, tax debt, ICBC debt, payday loans, student loans, personal loans, just about anything else can be part of the consumer proposal. But then the difference from a traditional consolidation is zero interest and it's a repayment of a fraction of the amount, not the full amount. The rest is just written off. So if you pay back 30 cents on the dollar, the balance of the 70 cents on the dollar, that's written off at the end of the proceeding according to law. Okay. And what about the uh, length of time? Is is there a, a stated length of time that this will always take or, or mm-hmm. does that change or is that different? Yeah, there's a maximum that's set out. So a proposal can be as short as you would ever want it to be. So, you know, in some cases, you know, if family members really want to help somebody who's in debt, the way they can help them is to fund a third party lump sum proposal where, you know, maybe the person owes $20,000 and the family is going to chip in, you know, six or $7,000 as a one payment in the proposal. That would all be done in the space of, you know, a month or two. More typically is that if someone has, you know, a bunch of debt, uh, let's use an example of $40,000, they're going to offer a proposal at 30% of those amount, which is about $12,000. They probably don't have $12,000 sitting around or they might not need our help. So typically what happens in a proposal is you're allowed up to five years to pay off the reduced amount. So you divide in equal monthly payments. In this case, your $40,000 debt reduced down to 12 would be about $200 a month. And you'd pay that $200 a month for up to five years. You can pay it off sooner if things get better and you double up on payments, but the maximum term it can ever take is five years. Okay. And that's, and you come to that amount after you've worked with me and figured out exactly what I have to pay, what it costs for me to live, whether yeah. it be with a family or I have a family, um, and, and still be able to make these payments on a regular basis. And, yeah. and, and get ahead. And that's a really important point, Elaine. So as a trustee, uh, when I file a proposal, I have to sign off on two things that I believe to be true. So one, that this is a better deal for the creditors. It's more money than they would get than if the person filed for bankruptcy. And that's pretty easy. We just look at the math. Yeah, you're paying back more. But the other is really important is do I believe that the person will be able to perform it? And I can only say that if we've sat down, we've examined the budget, we've proved the income, looked at all the other expenses, and we've said, yeah, this can fit into this person's monthly budget. If it can't, we can't do the proposal because we're not solving the problem at that point. We're just giving or trading one obligation that can't be paid for another, which is different than you just going and borrowing on a consolidation. Yeah, they'll look a little bit, but they just want to arrange the financing if possible. On a proposal, this has to be part of an overall solution that makes sense and fits within your daily realities. Okay. Could we outline for somebody who's listening, who's trying to figure out what's better, personal bankruptcy or consumer proposal, what's the advantages of choosing a consumer proposal over a bankruptcy? just Mm -hmm. to give them, you know, something to compare it to. 
Yeah, a couple things. You know, first off, one thing that I would highlight is just the amount of certainty that's built into a consumer proposal compared to a bankruptcy. And what I mean by that is once the proposal is approved, and that's about 45 days after you've signed it, we get all the votes in and a 50% say yes, the proposal is approved. Once that happens, you know exactly how the rest of this time is going to unfold. You're in control. As long as you make those payments, no one can opt out of the proposal. No one can sue you separately. No one can invent some new charges to put on top of these old debts. You know exactly what you're going to have to do. And if things improve in the future, let's say your salary goes way up or you get a bonus at work, you're not required to pay any of that towards the proposal. You can choose to do so and maybe pay it off more quickly and get things put behind you, but nothing increases in terms of the total amount payable. Now that contrasts with the bankruptcy where essentially I can't tell you how a bankruptcy is going to go until you're through it because every month that you're in bankruptcy, you have to report your income to us. I see. So if your income goes way up, if you're in a bankruptcy, the government says, well, that's great. You're going to be in bankruptcy bankruptcy a little bit longer and you're going to have to pay a little bit more money. But that can be kind of depressing to the individual. If you get a bonus while you're in bankruptcy, some part of it, usually about half, is going to have to get paid into the bankruptcy. It doesn't get you out any sooner. It doesn't give you any benefit, but you're just paying more into the bankruptcy. Got it. So if you know over the next little while, hey, my income's not going to increase, no unforeseen windfalls coming, okay, well, bankruptcy still can have a whole lot of certainty, but there is the potential at the end of a bankruptcy that either the government or your creditors can apply to court and say, hey, regardless of whether you've done everything right in bankruptcy, we still think there should be some amounts repaid. And this doesn't happen often. It sometimes happens if you're owe more than $200,000 to the government, and you can understand why they'd want something back on that. But there is that uncertainty that somebody could object until the end, whereas in a proposal, there's none of that uncertainty. You know within about the 45-day period if we've got a deal. Okay. Um, and in the, in the last uh, a minute or so for this segment, does a consumer proposal have advantages over any debt management solutions? Like, are there any other ones? Yeah, you know, some things, if you were to go to a credit counselor, for example, they would give you something that looks like a consumer proposal, but the big, big difference is a consumer proposal, it can reduce the debt as opposed to having to pay everything in full. It can include government debt, where the only folks that can, an informal credit counselor just can't. Um, and it's geared to what you can afford. So a proposal is going to fit into your budget. It can deal with all of your debts. And essentially, if one of your creditors doesn't want the proposal, we can still get the proposal approved as long as 50% by dollar value say yes. Nobody can opt out. They're all bound by the law. Okay. So there's lots of factors to consider when evaluating how to get out of debt. Um, The best advice that we can give you and that I can give you is go see Blair at Sands & Associates. Book your confidential free consultation. It's easy to do with a local Sands & Associates representative. They're all over British Columbia. They've got offices all over BC. It's easy to do. Call 1-800-661-3030. Go to the website at sands-trustee.com as well. You can use that to connect with them. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. If you want to get a hold of Sands & Associates, they've got a great 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030. Their website, also terrific. Tons of information, sands-trustee.com. This segment's all about, and it's kind of a fun segment, because Blair gets a chance to talk about... um, scenarios of your clients and the thing is we're kind of all in this thing together and you hear about one client you know that there's 
dozens of other people in a similar situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cool. So let's talk about um, sort of the latest stuff that you've been encountering. Yeah, so I'm kind of excited on this segment, Delane, I think there's something we're going to try to do every month, call it, you know, monthly client roundup or something. What are we seeing? What's, you know, new and exciting or not exciting in, in a bad way? Right. Um, but yeah, I've got a couple examples we'll talk through. But I think the first thing um, is we're just seeing a ton of CRA, Canada Revenue Agency, related calls these days. Um, and a lot of them are relating to a tax scam that's out there. And I know we've talked about it a little bit, Elaine, but it's probably good for our, our listeners to you know, get a bit of a refresher of exactly what's going on with CRA. Yeah, because it doesn't have to be tax time for these people to be phoning you and bothering you about whatever, especially the scary phone calls, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you have to take action immediately. You yeah. need to call me back right away or we yeah. will blah, blah. Well, and that's exactly what we're seeing and what we're oh. hearing. I've had, you know, two calls in the last week on my cell phone and they're clearly, you know, if you've got your antenna up, there's a bunch of badges of fraud. You can kind of tell maybe this isn't legit, but if you're someone in a tough situation, you might get sucked into it because they do prey on all of our fear about, you know, the tax man and the government having all these powers we don't even know about. So what actually happens is you get a voicemail typically and it says, you know, you will be subject to arrest unless you return this call right away, literally in the next, you know, 30 minutes or so. If you don't have this call returned, we're going to be arresting you. So then you call the number back and it's somebody from CRA, you know, they sound very professional and they say, you know, there was a problem with your tax return that's been filed and, um, you know, you need to go and make this right or else we're going to send the police to your door and making it right means that you need to pick a number, you know, as low as 500, as high as in the thousands, but uh, you need to make a payment immediately to the government to settle this and then we'll call the police away. And by the way, the way they'll accept that payment, Elaine, Bitcoin. Yeah. Wow. So they, they spend it all, you know, CRA, they want to have instant verification of payments being made. And, you know, they don't mention they want it to be untraceable and, you know, un, unrefundable whatsoever. But they try to say the government's now modernized and we leapfrogged everything to do with our commercial system. and We're now on Bitcoin. So that would be a first huge, enormous red flag clue is that because you know to be quite honest and i'm kind of savvy in some things yeah. but if somebody said that to me i'd go what yeah i have to do what a how i have no idea how to do that oh and they'll talk you through it you know there's bitcoin atms there's a you know a lady in whistler that put a good ten thousand dollars into a bitcoin oh, atm man. before she got to her, her senses there's a few in vancouver as well and obviously bitcoins can be used for legitimate or illegitimate reasons uh, but for anybody that's listening out there cra will never start a collection activity with a phone call you're always going to get tons of letters they're going to be very professionally written cra is not going to threaten you with an arrest especially not the next day they're not going to show up at your door and Sierra is never going to ask that you pay them in Bitcoin so really there's a bunch of things that you know I've had clients come in and luckily not too many have been taken by this but there's definitely been a few um, you know they're in you know weakened senses you know maybe someone had just passed away or they lost a job and and suddenly you know this was an extra stress they couldn't handle and they just paid to make it go away so, Wow so beware out there very good very good and like I say it doesn't have to be tax time uh, to get these phone calls yeah exactly uh, what else? Yeah, let's talk about a couple client examples. So, uh, you know, generally there's two things that we do. One is a bankruptcy, another is a consumer proposal. And about two thirds of our clients have been opting for consumer proposals for about the last couple of years. Uh, you know, a few years ago it was 50-50, it was a majority bankruptcy before then. So there's definitely a trend towards consumer proposals. Well, and I think once folks really understand what it is and how it works, it just seems to be, I, I don't want to say the easiest, mm -hmm. but the most accommodating way of doing things yeah. and it's not as scary a mm -hmm. word 
for sure, as yeah. bankruptcy is. 100%, but, yeah. th- you know, there's lots of pros and cons, and we've often talked about the differences between the two. But interesting. That's really interesting. I'm glad. I'm glad people are opting for that. Yeah, and I am as well, because usually people have a lot of pride when they do a consumer proposal. They say, yeah. you know what, I didn't take the easier way out of, of a bankruptcy, meaning that you pay less in a proposal. You typically have to pay more, but you get the satisfaction of saying, you know what, I didn't run from anything. I paid back what I could afford to pay back, and my creditors agreed with it. They said, yeah, this is a reasonable settlement. And all the benefits of a consumer proposal, too. I think those are, you know, it's important to sort of throw that in, too. Yeah, so let me talk through a client that I'm yeah. uh, and I work typically in the Vancouver and Langley offices, so, you know, to preserve confidentiality, I won't say exactly where his client is from, but I no. can give you some facts here. Yeah. Um, but it was an individual who came in to see me, and he was age 74, so I'm seeing, you know, a lot of folks, you know, who definitely in their retirement years, they shouldn't have any debt, but, you know, for a number of reasons, sometimes debts do accumulate. Yeah. Um, he was in good health, you know, very, very spry, a lot going on, but he was really stressed because he owed money. Um, his debts were $7,300. Not a lot. Doesn't sound like a lot. And the average person that we see, you know, typically it's thirty to forty, sixty thousand dollars, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, he had seven thousand three hundred dollars of debt, but it really mattered to him. It was important enough, it was disrupting his sleep, it was causing him huge anxiety because he just didn't know what to do. He was looking at his statements, he was making his payments, but nothing was going down, and his income was eighteen hundred dollars. So, you know, just CPP OAS and you know, living in the lower mainland here, fifty percent of his his monthly income was going to his rent. So wow. living on $900 there and trying to make payments on his debts of $7,300, he was doing it, but he was just not seeing the balances go down at all. Right. And uh, we'd have very, very little of disposable income. Exactly. So if he needed something for something else, a little bit of money, he'd be out of luck. Yeah. No ability to save money, no ability to weather an emergency or right. anything like that. Um, so I sat down with him and all of our clients, we meet them multiple times, multiple hours. So I met this gentleman at least three times for an hour each and we talked about all of his options. We talked about, you know what, at age 74 at $1,800 a month of income, they're probably not going to sue you and force you to pay this debt. So you realistically could probably change your phone number, just move on and forget about it, but Hmm. he wasn't interested in that. Okay. He was feeling the anxiety. He knew, hey, you know what, I borrowed this money. I want to deal with it. Sure. Um, You know, as much as I can say, it's not a criminal matter not to pay your debts and they might never pursue you for it. He still didn't feel comfortable doing that. Uh, you know, we also considered the idea of a personal bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Based on his income, he'd be considered low income. A bankruptcy would be over in nine months, uh, and he'd pay about $1,800 to do the bankruptcy over nine months. Um, I remember him saying, and I even quoted it here, in 74 years, Blair, I haven't gone bankrupt yet. I don't want to start now. Fair enough. So, yeah, that's a good way to come yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's not start now, and especially, you know, we're not talking $70,000 no. in debt again. We're talking 7300 Sure. So bankruptcy was not a foregone conclusion. What we were able to do is we structured a consumer proposal where he offered to repay just about 50% of the debt. So, you know, sometimes in proposals you can repay 20, 30, 60%, something like that. Mm -hmm. In his case, we thought the creditors would agree to a repayment of roughly 50%, and they did agree to that. They agreed to a deal. He was going to pay $100 per month over 38 months, so $3,800 in total on his debts of $7,300. No interest, no additional charges, nobody bothers him at all, and the proposal's been accepted by creditors. So he's incredibly happy. He gave me his banking information. We withdraw $100 a month, and about three years from now, I'll have no debt. He's going to move on with his life much happier. That's awesome. And so what a relief it must have been for him. 
a hundred and a hundred dollars a month yeah. that's really not very much money exactly on a per month basis it's less than he would have paid in bankruptcy but yeah. it goes a, a little bit longer yeah and what I was really happy too is he came in to see me after his second payday loan so you know sometimes I see people when there's 10 15 different payday loans the okay. anxiety on that just multiplies because you know you can't pay them back I'm um, so I was happy we were able to you know pretty well head that off at the pass right because and payday loans we can spend just a moment it's you talk about it as just being an awful thing to get into an awful um, well, it's really vicious cycle. That's, yeah. that's exactly the word, Elaine. Yeah, it's, it's very rare that I get somebody with just a single payday loan because at 500% interest, which a lot of them work out to be, you need to take out a second one to pay the first, a third to pay the second, so on and so forth. So it just multiplies. Now, you talked about uh, him in the sort of the notes that I read about him. Uh, you said that he was judgment-proof, and I wasn't too sure what that meant if somebody is called judgment-proof when it comes to uh, debt. Yeah, that's a good point. So judgment-proof means that even if somebody were to sue him, if his credit were to invest some money, hire a lawyer, take him to court, the judgment that they would get wouldn't have any force and effect, okay? The creditors could sue him and the judge would say, yes, you've got a valid debt, but to enforce a debt, you need to be either able to seize some assets, and he had no assets, you know, you need to have a house with no mortgage or something like that, which he clearly didn't have, and his monthly income of just CPP and OAS, pretty tough to convince a judge to give a creditor a piece of that. You know, if 50% is going to rent, do they want him to live on the street? I don't think so. Right. So realistically, judgment-proof means that even if you were sued, it's likely the judgment wouldn't have any effect on you, other than psychologically, emotionally, you'll know, hey, you're subject to a court proceeding here. Right. And the last one, and I think this is, I always think this is an important one that we talk about, is is credit counseling concerns. Yeah. And this was just an example I had last week that, you know, almost broke my heart in, in a way. Uh, it was a, a couple that I met with, and 18 years ago, um, they got into trouble on their taxes. And it was because they were both, you know, very, um, very good students doing well in school. And then one of them got very sick and had mm. to drop out of school. And then subsequently, they had a few kids and started a family. And, you know, now everyone's health is great. Uh, but for literally the last 18 years, these folks have had a tax issue that they went to see a credit counselor 18 years ago, and they were told there is nothing you can do about tax debt in Canada. You just need to pay it. You need to suck it up and pay it dollar for dollar. Oh, so boy. for 18 years, they've had no hope. They've built no net worth. They haven't even filed taxes for the last 10 years because if they file, they know the government's going to want their money. So, so many times in my office, they said, how can this be allowed that someone can give bad information on debts? And unfortunately, it's buyer beware. If they had come to a trustee 18 years ago, they would have had a much different, you know, last 18 years. Oh my gosh, that is a heartbreaker yep. that they, uh, that they didn't think that they could take action and then be so afraid to do anything, especially even file tax, your tax return. Yep. That's, oh, very, very sad. If, uh, I guess the bottom line, do you want to hit the bottom line? And I, I can talk about it or you can on this, that only a trustee, uh, is a federally is federally licensed to help you understand your debt options, and I yep. I think that's just a really good thing to remember. Uh, any credit counselor can set up shop overnight and then give bad information. Always get a second opinion, and if nothing else, if you're pretty much sold that this is the right way to go, and you just take that hesitation and get that second opinion and and call and make that get a free consultation with Sands and Associates. Um, Blair and any of his staff will be able to give you the best information that is available and it's factual and true and because they have to tell you the the facts about this mm -hmm. uh, 
or check the website. It's terrific. Sands-Trustee.com or you can give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation and to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So if you are at all paying attention to any kind of media, including social media today, and, and it's the ads that show up regardless of where you are, what you're looking at or listening to or watching, there's always ads for payday loans, cash loans, Different people are going mm-hmm. to solve all of your problems. And that's what this segment is all about. Because all you need is more debt, more right? Debt. That's the solution here. Well, yeah. Except that's not how they suggest it, right? No. It's about, here's money. This mm-hmm. is what you need is more money. But, of course, how you're looking at it is is really the smartest, best way to look at it. Because it is. And, boy, oh, boy, the rules are... You need to pay attention to those rules because they're very different mm-hmm. than anyone else's rules. So that's what we're talking about in this segment is payday and brokered cash loans and learning what brokered cash loans are as well. Yeah. That's a, That was a new term for me. So let's talk about a payday loan to start it off. Um, who, who are the folks that, and you really are being forced uh, because of circumstances to, to use them. Mm-hmm. Who, who have you found are those people? Yeah, in terms of using payday loans. Yeah, using the payday uh, loans. You know, it, it tends to run the gamut. You know, oftentimes it's folks that are a little bit earlier on in their career, you know, maybe aged, you know, 20 to 35 or so. Uh, it starts off with one loan, and then there's a second loan required to repay the second one, and then a third one, and so on and so forth. So we're going to talk about some of the, the you know, statistics later, but I find it to be just a very insipid form of financing. You know, one leads to another, and it's all negative just because the cost and the fees are so high. So it's, it's viewed as a very short term, you know, nonchalant, go and get your payday loan on the way to dinner type thing. Uh, For a lot of people, it either accelerates their financial decline or it starts them on a cycle that, you know, maybe they would have avoided otherwise they had not taken that first payday loan. And I think part of the, the, part of the the thing that you need to remember too, is that these are private companies. So these aren't banks, these aren't governments, these aren't Anybody who has some sort of public interest in helping you, they're private companies mm-hmm. wanting to make money. Yeah, and, and their, bus- their business model is they don't care about your credit score. No. So they say, you know, it's inherently more risky that way. Uh, they just care about, you know, do you have a paycheck coming in that they can basically take a piece of? So what a payday loan is, it's a short-term loan. Again, as you mentioned, offered by privately operated companies online or in store. Uh, you can borrow up to $1,500 per loan, and the loan has to be repaid on your next paycheck. Uh, the various provinces and territories have different rules, but in BC, they've set the maximum fee for borrowing. A two-week $100 loan is $15 and a maximum penalty of $20 for a bounced payment. And those charges are in addition to interest rates that you pay. Now, in Canada, there's a criminal code that says that the rate of interest, the maximum rate possible, uh, is 60%. But when we do the math and we look at all the cost, fees, and so on and so forth, payday loans are closer to an annual rate of 400%. So wow. 
I don't know how this can get squared in all the court challenges that have been out there, but it's so far in excess of what the criminal rate of interest is, um, again, to be shocking for a debt professional. Do you want to go into the numbers a little bit of of that uh, 2016 report from Van yeah. City on who's on who's who they found are using them? Yeah, so the, the Van City is the only uh, big bank that we've seen that's done a good job at, at surveying, you know, or studying this type of a population. And what they found uh, is in BC, about 5.6% of individuals, or almost 200,000 people, when you think about that, that's a lot. Uh, had used payday loans in the past year. And this was in 2016. Uh, one in five of the payday loan users were what we'd consider heavy users. They were taking out six to 10 payday loans in a year. So those are the clients that I tend to see. It's very rare I see somebody with just one payday payday loan. It's more along the lines of the six to 10 that are outstanding. Um, between 2012 and 2014, that population of people that had multiple payday loans, or in this case, more than 15 payday loans outstanding, that went up more than 600%. So this is a relatively new phenomenon. Since I've been a consumer trustee, a licensed insolvency trustee, I didn't see any payday loans for probably my first five years of practice. You know, the last eight or nine years, it's just been an accelerating factor where more and more individuals are coming in with payday loans owing. So are we looking at the period 2012 to 2014 as some sort of crunch, money crunch, or value crunch that people just, that's it. I can't do this anymore. I'm not sure if there's something that discreet, Elaine. I think it's just that's when they studied. And if they were to continue studying, they'd probably find that that's okay. continued to increase okay, uh, in fair that enough. way. So okay. there's just been, yeah, it, it's easy financing to access. It's your lender of last resort typically, um, but it's it's often, you know, not a positive financial outcome. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, I also, it's I thought this was interesting that British Columbia has the highest rate of working age people living in poverty. And, yeah. that, would, and that would go with that other uh, period of time, right? I mean, folks, you know, things change considerably in BC in terms of the cost of living. Yeah, I don't think it can surprise anybody who's paying attention. That's a very difficult province to, to make ends meet. You know, even with a solid income, with a couple of kids at home, it can be really difficult, you know, to keep your head above water. And in BC, the study found that, you know, most payday loan, payday loan users in BC, uh, they were employed and they had completed a post-secondary education. So we're right. not talking about people that are, you know, functionally or financially illiterate. Oftentimes people know everything that's out there. It's just they really need this money to get them through the next couple of weeks. And because you talk to people every day and and see uh, how many are using payday loans or have used them and gotten into uh, trouble, what um, what do you think in your experience is the, the reason why they go to the payday loan? You know, I think, Elaine, it's just cost of living. So for the most part and most of the time when I speak to somebody, there was nothing specific they can point to that they needed this payday loan for X. It wasn't, you know, to buy this asset for their business. It wasn't, um, you know, to deal with this really unexpected expense for the most part. A lot of the time, it's just I got to the end of the month, I needed to buy groceries. You know, I needed to pay the cable bill. I needed to pay the rent. It's the cost of daily life, which you should be never using credit to pay, but payday loans often fill that gap towards the end of the month. Okay. So that we talked about this in the very beginning and talking about these brokerage agreements, uh, which seemed new to me. And mm-hmm. I guess it's probably, has it been around for a while? I've seen it since about 2016 okay. or so. And my God, the first time I saw one of these agreements, I'm like, how is this possibly legal? Um, you know, you obviously look at the individual, you know, were you aware of what you were signing? And the person's like, yeah, I just 
just, I needed the money and this is how it kind of worked out for me. So, you know, let, let's talk about how this works. Yeah. So there's broker loans that I've seen. To me, it's a way for them to get around, again, that 60% criminal rate of interest in the criminal code by essentially dividing up the lending decision to a broker that's going to help you get the loan arranged. You're going to pay them a fee. And then the actual loan itself, which is not going to cost you as much as you might think with interest. But when you add the brokerage fee and the interest together, you realize, oh my God, I have way overpaid for any type of financing like this. Okay. And how, uh, you know, how do they appear to us out there in, the, in our world, in our day-to-day world? Well, so sometimes you don't even know that it's happening. It can just be under the same banner that you've seen for, you know, these different payday loans or instant loans. Okay. But when you actually look at the agreement, there are two agreements and one is with a broker and one's with the actual loan, loan originator itself. Are they often the same company? Yeah, they can okay. be. Yeah. So, so that's how they get away with that so under 60% yeah. number. Yeah. So if we look at an actual example here, and these were some documents that client brought into me and said, I can share some of the information here. Um, let's call this person John. So John needed to borrow $700 and he was offered the money that he needed from a company we'll call ABC Loan. So it could okay. be anybody but ABC Loan. And there was a broker called Borrow Now. So he went into ABC Loan. They said, yeah, we can get you this. And we worked through this broker and he didn't quite understand everything, but he, he thought, okay, yeah, it seems to be two agreements here. So what happened is John got the $700 he needed from ABC loan and the interest rate was 32%. And so he agreed to that. He agreed to that. And he thought, oh, well, it's less than 60. It's definitely more than what my credit card would be, but I'm maxed out on that. So right. I'm going to take this at 32%. So he's going to end up paying, and this is a very short-term loan, he's going to end up paying back $700 in the principal. The interest is going to work out to about $28, given the amount of time he had it outstanding. Um, he had to pay about $2.50 in bank fees to get the withdrawal done. So, so far, nothing too extreme here. But the flat fee for his brokerage borrowing uh, arrangement $325. So does that mean that he, what he borrowed, the $700, and then $325 on top of that? Exactly. So he's over $1,000 at this point. It cost him $1,055 to borrow $700. Wow. And the interest rate was only $28 of that cost. The rest of it was this brokerage cost. Oh, boy. So how is that not considered part of interest? I don't know. Maybe they got better lawyers than, than I know. But uh, my God, for that individual, they paid through the nose for very short-term financing. So as we wrap up this segment, and we're talking about brokerage uh, loans. How? What do we do? How do we find? How do we see that that's what we're dealing with? Well, you just understand this is absolutely the lender of last resort, and understand you're probably not going to have a positive outcome, and just try to look at alternatives. So if it's to pay rent, can you sit down with your landlord and say, Hey, you know, if I'm going to pay you, I'd have to take out a payday loan. I don't want to do that. Have him been late before, can we work something out? It's sitting down with a trustee and saying, okay, I've got all this debt. Can we restructure it? Can we eliminate the interest? Usually the answer is yes. Almost always there's alternatives that can keep you away from payday loans and and brokered loans. Great. We're talking to Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.